Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz. This is the last week of November, just after Thanksgiving in America. We have a huge episode for you today. There is crazy stuff going on. Turkey is bombing Kurdistan. Ukraine is in total blackout. Cyprus, things are going on ecclesiologically. There's literally volcanoes exploding around the world. It's getting crazy out there. Dimitri, how are you? Well, I'm doing all right, but it looks like, yeah, some intense things are building up. Everything is development, developing sort of in the same track that we've predicted all along. And, you know, not not to say that it hasn't become intense. Yes, it's absolutely like things are really getting really heated in the Middle East as long and Europe as well. Uh, I am excited to speak to you today about some of the diplomatic, of course, uh, circumstances surrounding Russia, Armenia, and we can probably get into the church matters surrounding Cyprus as well, because there have been some developments and uh, really some interesting news, of course, uh, which may not be so positive, but of course, that's more to come as we'll discuss it further. Yeah, there's stuff going on in Africa. You have the Patriarch of Alexandria no longer commemorating Patriarch Kirill. Ecclesiologically, you know, there's um, you know, there's big things happening, and that's the stuff. We like to bring that just, we care about that stuff just as much as we care about, you know, tanks moving into other territory. It's just as important. And yeah, no, like Ukraine, the, the special military operation is, is heating up. It seems that Putin has made has talked about some things that we've, very recently that we've talked about on this show extensively. So I think uh, with all of that, uh, well, thank everybody for some great feedback these past weeks with our latest episodes. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. We've got some great articles coming out. But yeah, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Telegram. We're really covering all this stuff. And we're probably going to even have some Twitter spaces coming up soon. So be sure to follow the World War Now underscore account on Twitter, as well as my account, GnomeRad, GnomeRad as it's spelled, and Dimitri, O Canonist, the Orthodox Canonist himself. But with all that out of the way, um, I guess we can just start with uh, some of the stuff on the ground like we usually do with Ukraine and the blackouts and the real targeting of the electrical grid, uh, as well as some of, the, some of the latest diplomatic developments. Dimitri, what is going on on the ground? Well, in the Ukraine, in the Ukrainian sphere, at least in the in terms of propaganda, um, the wife of Zelensky recently uh, posted on her social media that Ukrainians are willing to go without electricity for two to three years um, in order to become members of the European Union, and they do not mind the fact that, well, as in recent days, you've probably noticed, but in recent weeks even, the Russians have been continuously bombing and firing directly specific missiles at uh, electrical stations all around Ukraine. So any power generating stations, even I think Big Surge on Twitter reposted a satellite image of Ukraine. It's essentially from one of NASA's satellites. It just appears that Ukraine is this black, almost darker than the Black Sea, actually. Just there are no lights. The electricity is going out. So on the ground, Ukrainian infrastructure is being targeted by the Russians. There haven't been many huge military developments in the last two weeks. Of course, there is a standstill after the Ukrainians have moved into Kherson. And on the propaganda end, though, the it's it really is developing in a pretty negative fashion for Russia, I suppose, on in in the domestic sphere. People are still the people still haven't received an explanation as to why Kherson was sort of given up. Like a and even Putin recently did admit that. You know, uh, yeah, perhaps Russia should have entered into Ukraine a lot sooner, maybe eight years ago. And like, this is the first time we heard any sort of admission from Putin in regards to, you know, well, uh, why didn't the special military operation begin sooner? So a lot of Russians, especially the patriotic minded ones, are, of course, uh, addressing addressing some of these key issues, which the government hasn't um, hasn't really res responded to in the Ukraine. And 
let's just say like people like Gubaryov and people like Strelkov, really passionate people on the ground that go back eight years in time. These Donetsk heroes, I suppose, the, the, well, the last one standing, are extremely critical towards Russian political bureaucracy as well as politicians. So uh, domestically, the Russians are kind of neutral in terms of how they're doing. But f in foreign policy wise, in terms of the actual war in Ukraine, Russia's doing great. At the moment, things are only developing positively. Kherson, of course, is lost, but the the infrastructure of Ukraine is currently being targeted. Um, I think long term, as we predicted, Conrad, with you a couple of weeks ago, the moving into winter, it's going to get a lot colder in the Ukraine. There's going to be a, a, a huge internal crisis and Ukraine is going to have to make some decisions whether or not it tries to go for peace or whether or not it actually concedes certain grounds to Russia, um, you know, politically as well as, as as well as geographically. Well, regarding Kherson, it seems that even Ukraine wasn't able to stick around there for very long. You know, I think they have residual forces and everything, but they had to even pull back because Russia was able to just bombard them so thoroughly in their military equipment from the other side of the Dnieper, which, you know, that's neither here nor there, really. It just kind of shows that in many mm -hmm. ways, Kherson was perhaps an inconvenient position to hold with the current status of mobilization on both sides, frankly, which I think is an interesting development. But, no, you're, you're very much right that... Uh, as far as troops moving forward, you know, Russia is seeing some advancement in the Donbass region, and Donetsk is also still experiencing very heavy shelling as the Ukrainians are trying to respond in kind, as it were, to, you know, blackouts in Kiev and Lvov and other places. But, no, it, it just seems that as well, like, they're also ramping things up on the ground. I mean, Ukraine has now started raiding the Kiev, you know, some of the main lavras and monasteries in Kiev and Ukraine, where even, you know, the Metropolitan and the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, you know, spends a lot of his time. So the Ukrainians are very much getting, you know, desperate in a way. And they're, uh, you know, in the, since the since the Poland fiasco has kind of died down, they're, they're maybe a bit afraid to do something like that again, but they, they almost feel like they need to. So they're, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here for a little bit. Mm, yeah, it does seem like, you know, usually the cliche comes up, you know, the best defense, defense is a good offense. And that's exactly what we're seeing from the Ukrainian front, as you've said, you know, you know, Yes, they have taken Kherson, and yes, they are on the defensive in terms of time. They only have about a month before it gets really cold. So what the Ukraine is doing, I suppose, is really pushing on both the ideological cultural specter spectrum as well as the, I guess, militarily, they're really pushing towards like uh, towards Donetsk, continuing the bombardment. They're not really slowing down. Um, we haven't seen any like grand movement of troops yet, but the Ukraine hasn't really retreated. Like It's not like the troops have backed off. And as you mentioned, the uh, Kiev-Pichersk Lavra, the greatest monastery in the Ukraine, Orthodox Christian Monastery, is currently being raided by the equivalent of the Ukrainian FBI. They're called the SBU. And the SBU, as well as uh, local police forces, are searching through the monastery archives. They're searching through the bookstores. They're searching for pro-Russian extremist materials, essentially. So we have these Ukrainian, essentially Ukrainian KGB, going through these Orthodox books, searching for mentions of pro-Russian things, which, mind you, it's a Russian Orthodox monastery. So the lives of saints will be mentioning Russians uh, in a very positive light, I'm not sure that, like, I I can imagine they're going to find a lot of, uh, you know, so-called extremist material there. So it, this is really, like, me and Conrad spoke about this for weeks now, even with Patrick Casey. We mentioned the fact that persecution is ramping up as the regime in Ukraine and the regime of Zelensky specifically is getting desperate. It's not that the average Ukrainian wants to, of course, uh, cr you know, intimidate and hurt the Orthodox Church. No, it's the regime itself is afraid of the Orthodox Church and its capacity to sort of raise the people up to stand up to evil, which which is why the Orthodox Church is being pressured and coerced so badly in the Ukraine. I mean, this is open persecution at this point. Well, it's, it's really sad to see this, you know, things that you would, you know, Christians in the West have talked a lot about, you know, persecution. In many ways, Christians in America are 
some say they want persecution and there's you know there's there's something to be said about praying for persecution and things like that as as a blessing but when when you see this kind of stuff it, it almost seems like something out of you know evangelicals will talk about in the future they'll be coming door to door asking if you're a christian kind of thing and sure it's not quite at that level but it's uh it really is scary seeing some of these images as an orthodox person and just knowing that those people are acting also on the behalf of schismatics well we know the schismatics are acting on behalf of the government but from an ecclesial, you know, spiritual perspective, those people are acting on behalf of those who seek to break up the church as well. So it's 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 really unfortunate to see. But as uh, you know, Zelensky, his, his he ramps up the rhetoric as uh, we see his wife, you know, tweeting these kinds of things, speaking on behalf of all of the Ukrainian people. I mean, the the refugee crisis. I mean, the Duran, the guys on the Duran have spoken a lot about this. I think we people haven't even talked about it enough that as it gets worse, even more millions of Ukrainians are going to leave and. Poland and Austria and these countries that are close by, they already think they have way too many Ukrainian refugees. And this is going to be one of those things that actually pressure some of these countries to maybe eventually tone down their, you know, extreme bellicose rhetoric against Russia and support for Ukraine, as well as perhaps even like begin to look at how they themselves and their borders can change to accommodate you know, perhaps getting some of the people out of their uh, metropolitan areas, considering places like Poland and Romania. But uh, you talked about Putin and his speech about saying that perhaps we should have gone into the Donbass in 2014. Of course, if you've been listening to us since the beginning, we talked about that exact idea in the first episode of our show. If you uh, followed my newsletter a long, long time ago, this is a bit more esoteric, uh, the American Byzantine since 2020, I'd been talking about a possible invasion of Ukraine, saying that, frankly, if this were to happen, you know, explaining the context of the whole situation and how it uh, relates to the, you know, eight-year-long conflict since 2014, I was saying it would have probably been more positive to undergo an operation like this in 2014, you know, so I've been talking about that idea for a long time. Many people, basically everybody who would consider themselves either a Russian patriot in Russia or someone who's even a, a realist in America or someone who was against a neocon foreign policy would have liked to have seen Russia quickly end this, uh, you know, this worldwide sink that it's turned into now, you know, this conflict, this proxy conflict in 2014, as opposed to now being almost a year into billions of our tax dollars being thrown away. Yeah, there's a look, uh, as you mentioned, like uh, the support for a 2014 Russian intervention or a peacekeeping operation has been, of course, on the cards uh, ever since 2014, except we, at least by we, I mean, Russians needed to wait eight years for it to initiate. And of course, uh, realists in international politics have understood, in international relations, have understood the fact that, look, Russia always had the capacity to enter into Donbass, at least as a peacekeeping force, and prevent this continued bombardment, which, mind you, is still ongoing in the in the wake of the SMO beginning. But, um, of course, uh, so that was always on the cards, and people like Alexander Dugin, yourself, uh, Igor Strelkov, um, even even political commentators like you know even active politicians like Prigozhin, where you know the leader of Wagner has actually recommended that look maybe Wagner could do something in Ukraine as early as 2018. So yeah, and so of course Prigozhin, a kind of a questionable figure in Russian politics, he obviously became famous not because of his statements, uh, you know, his sort of ideas, these adventurous ideas about invading Donbas in 2017-18 or assisting with Wagner, his. Uh, Wagner mercenary force is, of course, the, one of the first private military. It's similar to Blackwater, what, what the Americans had in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is the Russian equivalent. So if people aren't sure what Wagner is, Wagner, 
um, mercenary group. If, if you can recall Blackwater in Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s, this is the Russian equivalent. So, And it's almost as controversial as Blackwater, maybe not as, um, shall we say, uh, evil and chaotic, shall, you know, if we're going to play along to that. But yeah, so Evgeny Prigozhin, he is a similar figure to, say, um, uh, Mr. Prince, the CEO of Blackwater, and now I think it's called the... Uh, I think Blackwater has changed its name recently. I'm not sure. But Prigozhin is a very interesting figure. And the most controversial statement he's made recently was, of course, that he's been uh, he's been actually recruiting Russian um, convicts and people from prisons into a new battalion. Now, what do you think he's called a new battalion? Oh, frankly, it's not even a battalion. It's called a division, which the word division in Russian culture ever since World War II has had this uh, very honorable connotation. Division, whenever you bring up divisions, people think of these famous infantry and tank divisions from World War II, these heroic congregations of troops. Now, Prigozhin, in, in his own sort of a 1990s uh, kind of a I guess uh, you could say gangster fashion because he does resemble a gangster of some sort. He did call this new division of convicts Pitushina uh, Divizia, which in Russian, I guess in English, translates to uh, the division of roosters, which uh, it's kind of like it calling your division inglorious bastards or something like that. It's a bit, in, in Russian culture, that is uh, what he's done. It was pretty offensive. So he called his new division a division of roosters, which sounds a bit comedic in English, but in Russian, Pitushina uh, Divizia, that's... Uh, I mean, culturally speaking, nothing like that has ever been done in the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. This is really kind of unprecedented. For him to call his division, essentially the inglorious bastards, is a little bit bizarre, to say the least. It's a bit... Uh, some political commentators, as well as former generals of the Russian army, they are saying this is a bit disrespectful to the Russian military tradition. And Evgeny Prigozhin himself not being a military guy, and frankly, I think by career, he's a chef. So he's a chef that has become a politician, and now he's, of course, a mercenary leader. It's... Uh, it's very bizarre. So we have these large-than-life figures active currently in, in the European theater. And yeah, it's really bizarre news developing. Well, Prigozhin and Wagner have actually been some of the most effective forces. And when it comes to footage that you see, just so people know, there is some artillery footage that you will see of Russian MOD and Russian army operating. But when you see uh, infantry video and other stuff, and even a lot of on-the-ground artillery shooting, you're likely either seeing... Donbass militia or Wagner because Russian military is a like they took everyone's phones they're not just leaking video from recent weeks you know so like they're being they're being very concerned about OPSEC and even Wagner and the militias won't immediately release footage you know you'll be seeing things a week old at you know at least so I think people need to recognize that you've probably already seen a lot of Wagner in action and they've been very effective in the Donbass region so much so that the West have made their own sort of version of Wagner called, I believe it's the Mozart Group, which is a US-based PMC head by this British um, expat who served in the US military and was involved in a lot of, a lot of, you know, the, the stuff you hear about with corruption. And well, he, he was involved in some shady stuff involved in Iraq. He himself did discipline some people that were like murdering animals and stuff in Iraq and other places, but he's very much been a lead, a lead operative behind the scenes for those who seek to you know, expand U.S. empire across the world. And it's interesting that we're just seeing more and more and more NATO and Western mercenaries and private military contractors to the point where it's already true that you'll see any video of an actual strike force taking taking a point or taking a location, they'll all be speaking English. So we, we need to, re people need to realize how much of a proxy war this really is. And in many ways, Russians already feel like they're just fighting Americans or fighting Brits because in many cases they literally are.
Yeah, that's right. A lot of, it's similar, I guess, in, in a way people call the Crimean War of the 1850s a world war, at least one of the first world wars. Why is that? Well, because the British Empire that participated in the Crimean War on the side of Sardinia, Turkey, and, and France was against Russia at the time in the 1850s. Uh, it did have recruits from Bangladesh, from India, from China, because the British Empire was a global, in a way, like the, the old America, it was this global empire which had people of many, many nationalities. And so the British, of course, brought all of these uh, international forces as well as Africans into Crimea in order to fight Russia. So in a way, this is a very similar situation, of course, not as open and as intense as the Crimean War, but we are seeing um, we are seeing this sort of international brigade uh, form, at least all the forces that are arrayed against Russia are, of course, uh, those who want to arrive are open open to, I mean, we've seen it, uh, people on Reddit, people promoting um, military uh, mercenary groups online everywhere, essentially, to arrive in Ukraine, to in Poland, to prepare to at least fight on the side of Zelensky and his government. And, uh, of course, this sort of behavior isn't really commendable, because at the end of the day, these people, like, how much do they really care for Ukraine? I, I'd wager, Conrad, that these people in a way, they're either seeking glory, money, or maybe even they're under some delusions that they're actually defending liberal democracy, as opposed to simply trying to, I don't know, get clout, for example. It is, I don't think the the goals of these mercenaries and overseas uh, sort of in people getting involved in Ukrainian um, Ukrainian warfare are actually seeking to benefit the Ukrainian people. I, like, frankly, I don't even think they um, even knew where Ukraine was on the map, like, say, a decade ago. Well, I think that's even being generous, and that's assuming the motives of the people that are over there genuinely for ideological or personal reasons to begin with. And I think most of them are just there as crypto-deployed NATO soldiers, you know what I mean? I'm not sure how much of a choice some of them had in the matter. And, you know, call me a conspiracy theorist all you like, but I think, I think this, I, I don't think we need to be too naive. Like, nobody, nobody was calling anyone a conspiracy theorist when they said that the DPR militia was getting Russian weapons when the evidence at certain times was actually thin, uh, not, not thin, but they weren't, they were actually being left out to dry in certain ways, as we oh, already absolutely. talked about, that Russia did not go in back in the day. But, I mean, with all these sorts of things, there's, um, with, with treaties and these alliances, there's, we talked about this, I talked about this, I teased it at the beginning, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, which, uh, I think I've mentioned a few times on the show before, it's kind of the post-Soviet attempt at something akin to a NATO-like security alliance never really became that like that. But, you know, it's made up of a lot of the post-Soviet countries, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, uh, a bunch of the other ones left, uh, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and I believe Uzbekistan. They left the treaty organization uh, for largely anti-Russian pressure political reasons. And... As of now, something big just happened regarding that with Armenia. Nicole Pashinyan, the current prime minister of Armenia, they were at a meeting of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and he effectively refused to sign what was a declaration of some sort that seemed to also just involve redeclaring the charter of the treaty organization at all. And there's a video of this happening where Putin throws down his pen and Lukashenko is a bit shocked. And... This has a lot of context as well with the Russia, I mean, I mean the Armenia-Azerbaijan crisis and war, but uh, it's a big deal. So, uh, Dmitry, if you have any other background on the CSTO, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this latest development. Yeah, I think it's, uh, frankly, I've, I've had many questions as well regarding the former Soviet countries, the former, I guess, Commonwealth of Commonwealth uh, Independent uh, States, um, uh, of the former Soviet Union nations, and Armenia being one of them, the CSTO being, I guess, as you mentioned, the, the I guess, the 
post-Soviet bloc equivalent of NATO. Um, Pashinyan, Pashinyan's been under a lot of pressure. It's it's interesting that he still remained in power despite, of course, losing the Nagorno-Karabakh war of recent years. But uh, yeah, he's under a lot of pressure domestically as well as, I guess, if for, in foreign policy, we see Russia's kind of like it, it's not really holding its part in terms of it's not interested really in participating on either side of the conflict we see it's not really getting involved in azerbaijan nor armenia and not really acting as i guess uh not joining either side here and in fact um this may this may lead of course pashinyan as as you mentioned to find allies elsewhere in order to support his him and his country in the war against azerbaijan which is probably to come like i don't think the nagorno karabakh conflict is uh, going to end, you know, any anytime soon. It'll probably continue on into five, ten years' time. But at the moment, yeah, we're seeing a development where France is becoming kind of the mediator in the conflict. And France, people think, well, France, you know, it's sort of like an old, old nation of the old order in the 19th century. It's kind of lost. No, France is probably has the strongest military in Europe at this point. At this point in time, it is a nuclear nation. France is still extremely powerful. So it's it's really just a matter of. Um, just a matter of understanding that France getting involved in Armenia more than Russia is at the moment and Pashinyan refusing to sign this treaty or, you know, kind of fumbling around, not being friendly with Putin and Lukashenko. This is this will have really impactful. Uh, of course, we've seen what happened in Georgia before Russia, of course, slightly offending Georgia or what happens to be Georgian political sensibilities has led Georgia over the last few decades to side with NATO further. Like, what can this lead Armenia to like? Will Armenia eventually side with NATO more? Um, I mean, it's all up in the air at this point, and yeah, it, it really is a huge development for Pashinyan to sort of not sign that not sign that treaty in front of you know Lukashenko and Putin himself. It's very uh, bizarre, and I dare say scary as well. Well, it means he's definitely gotten assurances and promises from powerful Western actors, which I'm sure we'll learn what those promises and assurances were in the coming days and weeks. But I mean, this is a conflict, of course, that is completely peripheral to the Turkey question, to the you know, all the stuff going on with Turkey, and we're going to talk about what's going on in Kurdistan as well. But remember, Azerbaijan is literally just Shia Turkey with Armenia in between. Like, that is what Azerbaijan is. They're closer than any other nation. They're like the closest allies of allied nations. They're extremely close. And Azerbaijan is also the gas hub of Israel. And we've talked in the past, you know, about Russians, Russia's relations with all of these countries in this region. It's all very also tied up with energy which of course has to do with Syria, why the U.S. has been in Syria just stealing its oil. That's why they've you know, kept the completely lost civil war going so they can maintain their little oil fields to keep you know, robbing the Syrian people of their resources. But again, as I said, this is all very relevant to the giant of that region that isn't Russia, you know, the Turkey, the Turkish giant. And they seem to have launched their own, it's been going for a little bit, but truly launched something even in some senses more extreme than the special military operation in Iraqi and Syrian Kurdistan, uh, Dimitri. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on this? On this? Yeah. The, before I speak about the Turkish thing, I just I guess uh, can I dwell a bit into the esoteric and conspira conspirological side of things as well. I just want to mention that the fact that this area in the southern and northern Caucasus between the between the Black and the Caspian Sea, it's very key, I guess, to many many histor historical events that have been taking place. I guess conspiratorially, even like we've had huge Rothschilds investment in the Russian Empire in those areas uh, at right at the end of the Russian Empire actually um, in the 1890s in fact uh, I think Emperor Alexander the third of the Russia uh, of Russia ended up decreeing that international investment needed to go through uh, needed to 
essentially uh, rapidly uh, undergo all these checks and balances before it could be you know sort of before anything can be built in the in those areas affected by the russian empire so we've had we've had a huge inter what i'm trying to say is international banking influence has been really big in those areas uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century at the end of the 19th century and now as well so these areas are very uh, of a large interest to these um uh, transnational conglomerates and uh, the globalists, shall we just call it openly, right? These large families which control the world. And we saw that in the Chechen conflict as well, all the various parties defending Chechnya, the various bizarre things that happen in the Caucasus, they happen there for a reason. This land isn't exactly like um, a land which is just, you know, which is just there and it's a historical relic. No, this is kind of like the... It, there's some sort of uh, aura to the area, let's just say. And of course, uh, that's why this conflict keeps erupting there and people from overseas always get involved. Um, let's just say things get pretty nasty very quickly, uh, to say the least. Now, I, I might discuss this in a future article later, which may get a bit conspiratorial on our um, World War Now substack. Now, as you mentioned, Turkey getting involved in Syria, this is, I guess, the other side of the coin because Armenia is hoping, I suppose, and Poshinyana as well, because Armenia has always been kind of under the foot of Turkey. There's always, they've always been... Um, kind of under pressure from the Turks, which are their Western neighbors, that, well, if Turkey is distracted by Syria and the Kurds, maybe Armenia will get away from get away from certain consequences geographically. And yes, that, that's exactly what we're seeing now. Turkey is, in fact, chasing its own domestic and foreign policy interests in, in northern Syria, actually pushing the Kurds. I think they said uh, the warfare happening in northern Syria is almost uh, at a level that uh, of the SMO in the, in February of this year, we have we're seeing um, lots of Turkish tanks, we're seeing planes, uh, missiles bombardment. The Turks are really pushing certain areas uh, controlled by the Kurds in northern Syria, and of course, I believe um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Conrad, but I believe Assad and his uh, his forces have not yet recovered, uh, you know, all of control over all of Syria. So in a large way, I, I think close to 30% of Syria is still not really under the control of the Assad government, which is why Turkey kind of just waltz in with their forces and uh deal out justice and seek their own interests on foreign land because syria of course is not turkey it's a completely different nation state and therefore their sovereignty is not being respected so yeah it's really kind of apocalyptic you know we spoke about turkey and the you know constantinople the future prophecies and now turkey is actually going out there seeking conflict uh, it's kind of broken this veil of neutrality and it's pushing its own interests against the kurds so what are your thoughts about that conrad i guess no, it's, it's, it's really getting intense. Yeah, when it comes to Syria, everyone just needs to remember this. Syria, while, you know, from Damascus for the majority of, you know, where the people live in Syria, down in the Levant, near the Holy Land in these places, that's obviously under entirely the control of the Assad government. They, their biggest issue is getting bombed by Israel. But the when it comes to the northern part, it's very complicated because there's still vestiges of, you know, the Free Syrian Army and uh, these things that the U.S. proxies that were the main forces in the Civil War. ISIS has always had tiny, tiny little cells in areas that I think have actually grown recently because ISIS seemed, they seem to be making a resurgence. So I'm wondering how this, the CIA maybe got more money to do that. But when it comes to the other parts, Turkey has a buffer zone into northern Syria that has in many ways been agreed upon with uh, some oversight from Russians as well as... Um, it, again, this is... There's a Kurdistan is this state is this large region of Kurds that are not it's not they don't have a state themselves but it's from Turkey into Syria and into Iran it's this big in Iraq there's this big Kurdish belt that is called Kurdistan informally and they have you know their own local governments and it's it's very much its own kind of culture and civilization that is a bit nebulous and it gets a lot of support from the West in many ways actually but 
that is uh, the big section that buffer zones Turkey is pushing well past that, which from my perspective, it seems that the Russians are, are not going to do anything about this. And some might say, oh, that's because Russia is just too weak to challenge Turkey here. I think if Russia wanted to, they would be able to mount something like it. They would be able to rattle the, sable, rattle the saber a little bit, but I just think they see they have no interest in defending the Kurds necessarily, and they are really not interested in seeing Turkey, you know, close the Bosphorus Straits in the Dardanelles, which it seems that they're still set on doing and obeying the oil price cap on December 5th. So we're really going to be watching that. So be sure to follow us everywhere because that's that could be a big day when that happens. But yeah, no, with Syria, it's geography. Turkey is very much barging in. And again, the Assad government, they he was very good at having all the Christian, Muslim, Kurdish, these, these groups, they were able to live in peace. And unfortunately, because Kurdistan and the Kurds extend so far into Turkey, they're always going to be subject to Turkish domestic issues, especially, of course, these huge terrorist attacks in Istanbul. And I believe there was one other one somewhere else in Turkey that was very large. But uh, yeah, Dimitri, when it comes to these terrorist attacks and the and all that, what, what's your perspective on it? What's, what do you think Turkey's endgame is here? I think Turkey is still chasing dominance, I think, in, in the... Uh what you can call the Isla, broader Islamic world. So we have these uh, several sort of theaters of power. We have the Persian theater in Iran with the Shias. We have the the Hejaz of all these nations, like the Qatar, where the recent uh, football World Cup is ongoing. And, uh, you know, um, Saudi Arabia, there's all, all these uh, southern monarchies, which are in, in a way kind of uh, US petrodollar enforced nations. And then you have, of course, in the north, you have the great Turkey sort of one of the, the former Ottoman Empire, which at one point controlled almost the entire Middle East. So, of course, the Turks uh, keenly remember at least the fact that Syria was under their control prior to World War One, and all of these areas were at one point, uh, you know, Arabic as well as Turkish-speaking uh, Turkish land. So the Turks do have, do have a pretty good memory of exactly what was occurring in these areas, which is why they're so confident in terms of spreading out their... Um, spreading out their power across this uh, across the land. So, and of course, I, I doubt they're really upholding uh, upholding any sort of long term allegiance to Assad. Even if you know they they do claim that you know he does have some sort of legitimacy. That's I think that's mostly optics. Um, uh, I don't believe Erdogan for a minute uh, would respect Assad's long term long term sort of presidency or dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. Um, and if if of course Turkish interests. Uh, would be uh, somehow subjugated to that. I think Turkish interests in this regard come first. And yeah, of course, the push into the Middle East is uh, is really intense. Um, at the end of the day, there is another there's another great actor in this in this play, and that's of course uh, Israel. And Israel and Turkey are they do have an alliance uh, through the United States. So as long as the United States are standing, there is this understanding that Turkey and Israel are allies, and in a way they're both pincering all the nations in between, such as you know Syria, Lebanon, everyone. Uh, of course, Lebanon being held um you know aloft by Hezbollah and all these organizations, all of these. Essentially, it's a big it's a big knot, and whoever unravels it will, uh, of course, dominate this sort of area. But this this may take decades to unravel, and there may be even more blood blood flowing in the in this area, particular area. The civil war uh, in Lebanon, of course, in the 80s and 90s, we recall, was extremely chaotic. These areas and the recent Syrian war, like what's the uh, where's the lie? That was a incredibly uh, 
you know, it was an absolute tragedy. Like how many Christians died to ISIS? And yeah, and at the end of the day, we need to remember the most important thing here is the only reason Turkey is allowed or even has the leeway to pursue its interests in the Middle East at the moment is because, of course, the United States invaded and destroyed Iraq in 2002 and three. Okay, so when the Iraq invasion began, it essentially destabilized the entire region. And we this goes back to the fact that Iraq was this uh, large this large uh, Sunni sort of stronghold in the Middle East. Sure, it wasn't it wasn't perfect. It wasn't exactly following all the tenets of Islam, and it was kind of a mix between Islamic slash nationalistic dictatorship that really didn't follow, wasn't too nationalistic, and it wasn't too Islamic at the same time. It was just kind of like this, uh, essentially what Ukraine might have looked like in the early 2000s, and the US just came in and kind of just rolled over it. And now, now of course, ISIS emerged, and we have all these... Uh, instabilities in Syria next door, and Syria was an ally of Iraq. So you can imagine Syria is the part two of the Iraq War of the early 2000s, which is why Turkey essentially going in is completely kind of it's it's the next domino in line. It's to be expected. Uh, Turkish interests in Tur in Syria will be pursued further, and as you said, like can Russia actually stop this? Can Russia apply soft diplomatic pressure? I personally don't think so. At the moment, I think Russia's slightly too overextended in Ukraine and just a little bit too preoccupied, especially with the loss of Kherson, which is technically, according to the Russian constitution, it is a capital of an oblast. It is a Russian city. And so a Russian city has literally fallen into the hands of a foreign power. This is a breach of you know, constitutional sovereignty, I suppose. And to the Russians, there's greater things distracting them rather than, say, Turkey uh, essentially invading Syria, attacking Kurdistan and yeah, so Russia's a little bit distracted, in my opinion, at the moment in order to change anything in the Middle East, which may be unfortunate for the Middle Eastern Christians and all those, uh, I guess, uh, wholesome people in the Middle East waiting for some sort of order. But we will see how this develops. I just think in the short term, in the next year or two, Russia may be just a bit too preoccupied in order to change anything. No, I think you're dead on on that. And you're completely right with Turkey acting, you know, with the permission, of course, of the United States. This has come out, you know, the White House... Uh, I believe it's a national security coordinator, John Kirby. I'll read the quote here. He said, Turkey does continue to suffer a legitimate terrorist threat, particularly to their south, that means northern Syria, and they certainly have every right to defend themselves and their citizens. So as of now, the U.S. is giving, you know, fairly open support to the operation, which again, this is, you know, which country gave support to Russia at that level? You know, none, of course, because Russia, for better or for worse, is not as much of a client state, even as Turkey. Because Turkey is, of course, a member of NATO. That being said, besides the U.S., they are definitely the member of NATO that operates under the most sovereignty for itself. And um, and while Erdogan, he is a powerful ruler, he is a smart politician. He talked about Assad. I still think Assad, you know, he's in a lot less danger of being out of power anytime soon than Erdogan, you know. And that's neither for better or for worse. I think that's just the reality on the ground. And, you know, so we're always going to be watching Turkey closely, as we said. But... Yeah, no, is there anything else you have to say on that? If not, we may move a bit south to Cyprus if there's anything, if there's nothing else you have to say about that, Dimitri. Yeah, I suppose if we're moving into ecclesiology, we just need to remember the fact that Syria is the home to one of the oldest and most ancient Orthodox Christian populations. So me and Conrad are, of course, we, we do follow that very closely. And whatever conflict happens in Turkey and Syria, this, of course, affects the Orthodox Christians very deeply, especially these Christian minorities, which go back hundreds, if not thousands of years and have withstood, uh, you know, um, the Islamic, the Islamic conquests, the you know, the, the all the world wars, the recent conflicts that you know, the terrorists and all these various purges. So, 
of course it's very it's still it's very painful to see that these ancient lands are of course being still tarnished by international intervention war and all these other um horrible things and i just want to mention one more thing um the in the war in 2018 between azerbaijan oh no sorry 2020 between azerbaijan and uh armenia the the most important thing here is in terms of orthodoxy. Like, how did the Orthodox Church get involved here? Well, frankly, Armenia, as you know, belongs to an apostolic, a schismatic type of church, which disconnected from the Orthodox and, and of course, even the Catholic Church back in the day, um, I, I believe as far as 500 AD. So by 600 AD, they were completely separate. So the Armenian Church is kind of a separate thing, and they don't really dogmatically and theologically agree with the Russian Church on a lot of things actually since the 600s so this goes really far back so armenians even though they are predominantly christian they are not in the same church as the russians and frankly which country azerbaijan or armenia which country has more eastern orthodox christians so you would say that belong to the same religion as the russians for example and ukrainians it's well if it's azerbaijan surprisingly azerbaijan does have its own even orthodox bishop the bishop of baku and in fact the bishop of baku at the time in 2020 blessed all those members of Azerbaijan who are, you know, uh, I guess the flock of the Orthodox Church who participated in the military of Azerbaijan to go out and defend Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh and actually fight in the war. So we have Orthodox bishops blessing Azerbaijani troops. Meanwhile, Armenia, unfortunately, the Eastern Orthodox community there is quite small uh, amongst the apostolic Armenians that who held, hold sort of predominance. And so Armenian, I don't even believe Armenia even has its own Eastern Orthodox bishop actually representing them. So in a way, Armenia is Christian, but it does belong to a different sort of Christian denomination than Russians, Greeks, Georgians, and even well, the majority of Christians in Azerbaijan. So we have this interesting dynamic. You'd think Russia would be supporting its Christian neighbor, Armenia, but in fact, Russia was more, I guess, ecclesiologically and religiously, spiritually in the camp of Azerbaijan, which is, yeah, uh, something to think about, I suppose. But yeah, moving on to Cyprus, I think the recent Cyprus election coming up, it's uh, there's been some unfortunate developments. There's an article on Orthochristian which uh, speaks very openly about the fact that one of the main candidates for the seat of the metropolitan, for the seat of the next Archbishop of Cyprus, which is the leader of the Cypriot Church, one of the you know leading candidates was his name is Metropolitan Athanasios. So Metropolitan Athanasios, we, me and Conrad had the belief that well he was this very conservative Orthodox bishop who perhaps would uphold the old, I suppose the old order and would kind of return to a more conservative stance, maybe even not a pro-Russian, but follow the canons more, follow church tradition a bit closer than his predecessor, the Archbishop who, who just passed away. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Metropolitan Athanasius, the leading candidate, would has recently said certain things which uh, I guess would kind of go against that. I guess, uh, Conrad, if you have any comments on that. Well, it's a very unfortunate situation because, as we said in the past, Metropolitan Athanasios was a strong supporter of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. He never personally commemorated the schismatics. He always commemorated Metropolitan Onufri. He was not in any way a, a COVID zealot. He, you know, he wasn't as strong as Metropolitan Neophytos, but he was very much, you know, on his side. So the people were confident and he has been the leading candidate for a while. In many ways, he many thought he was supposed to be the patron, the archbishop before Chrysostomos II, but he ended up cutting a deal with, I believe, Metropolitan Nikiforos, and the, the votes ended up going to Chrysostomos. But this article talks about how he basically says that despite his personal belief that about the Ukrainian schism, he's basically going to uphold the precedent set by his predecessor. And the justification seems very, very thin to me. So so for this reason, we, we did endorse Metropolitan Neophytos, of course, for this position, not that our endorsement on this podcast necessarily matters, but just so I'm on the record. 
that that endorsement goes up now because we very much would rather have him who I don't believe has made any statement like this. He, I think he would do the right thing in the situation and bring the entire Church of Cyprus back into you know, communion with the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church. But um, mm -hmm. he might, again, and he is more of probably a long shot candidate. I mean, he was, he had to go to court multiple times in Cyprus. So it's perhaps a bit, this perhaps akin to like a Donald Trump situation running for president. He's, you know, literally a, you know, he's been under the scrutiny of the law for, you know, his resistance to the new world order. And uh, be, I think because of that, as I said, I read some great quotes from the groups supporting him. I think it's important now more than ever to, if you're Orthodox and you're listening to this, or if you're just Greek and listening to this and you know anybody, or you have Greek people in your community, or you go to a Greek church, or you know about a Greek church, uh, get reach out to those people. Ask them if they have relatives in Cyprus. Many of them will, I promise you. And get them to vote for Metropolitan Neophytos. That might seem silly to call someone and ask for something like that, but I, I don't care how silly you sound. This is important. And I think uh, it proves that it's a bit dumb to have these kinds of things be decided by a popular vote or even partially decided by a popular vote. But regardless, that's the hand we've been dealt. So uh, do that if you're listening to this. That's our call to action for today. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that just the fact that, uh, you know, Metropolitan Athanasius, as you said, his excuse of, well, supporting the precedent set by the previous Archbishop of Cyprus, um, Archbishop Chrysostomus, was, well, I guess it's it's part of the tradition of our church, you know, to uphold this precedent set by our, you know, former pastors. But mind you, I guess for American audiences, like this is simply as ridiculous as, for example, when, if you recall, the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, just, I'm just going to give this analogy and example from the American, from American recent history that when the uh, current Chief Justice John Roberts was inaugurated by George Bush and the, and the Senate to the Supreme Court of America, you remember during the inauguration, you can go watch the videos, he's asked, well, what would you do as a conservative Christian about Roe v. Wade, the abortion law, right, in, in the United States? Would you overturn it? And he said, no, this precedent is sacred. It is the, you know, the principle of stare decisis. We need to uphold it. Uh, Roe v. Wade, yeah, I don't agree with it personally, but I do have to uphold the precedent that, look, that was set by the courts before me. And, and, and frankly, Roe v. Wade is a, is a garbage law, which, thank God, was overturned recently. Praise the Lord, of course. And abortion uh, has become a lot more limited in the United States. But we have Metropolitan and Athanasius doing what John Roberts did in 2005 under George Bush. He's essentially saying, well, the precedent was set, even though the precedent set by his predecessor, Archbishop Chrysostomus, was a bad one. Like, there's this understanding that, well, precedent and church tradition is this great thing. But mind you, hierarchs in the Orthodox Church have made mistakes in the past, right? The, well, one of the, um, I mean, that the Count, the Synod of the Oak, for example, that expelled, uh, you know, and of course, uh, essentially not excommunicated, but they uh, exiled St. John Chrysostom in the 400s AD. Like, that was that was deemed to be an inappropriate synod. There are decisions in the church which are made by mistake, and of course they are rectified in the future. Or even the Second Council of Ephesus, which is, we call it the Robert Council, even though it had saints who participated in it. For example, Emperor Theodosius II, uh, the Roman Emperor, he held a, he essentially called up a Robert Council, had the council, and of course the council's decision was wrong. And this council later on was, of course, condemned. And, you know, the participants weren't exactly all condemned, but some of them were. And so we have here Archbishop Chrysostomus essentially making the wrong decision, supporting the schismatics in the Ukraine, which I think... Now, me, me and Conrad have this idea that, of course, the spiritual realm deeply, of course, affects the physical material uh, realm around us. So a schism in Ukraine in 2018 has direct influence on, of course, the behavior of the Ukrainian people in a, in a much negative fashion. Like, this is... A schism is... 
according to the Orthodox tradition and saints, a very deadly thing when it occurs in, like, the fact that it occurred in Ukraine, of course, probably uh, it's like a certain curse which spreads among the people and deeply spiritually harms them. And this probably led to the current conflict which is ongoing. And I think a lot of people would agree with us here. So Archbishop Chrysostomus, the previous Archbishop, Lord rest his soul, made a bad decision. And this new Metropolitan who may be the next Archbishop is saying, oh, we're going to uphold that wrong decision on the basis of some sort of traditional precedent, which is, I think is just inappropriate. It's a John Roberts moment. I'm sure you understand, Conrad, but yeah, I'm just not a big fan of it personally. I completely agree. And the only white pill, I guess, in your John Roberts analogy would be, in theory, I believe John Roberts supported Dobbs Jackson. I don't think it was a full, I don't think he signed the opinion, but he supported some of the things it did. So a bit of a cop-out, but regardless, he effectively went back on what he said in front of those, which was based, in my opinion. But I'm not sure that the same would go. If Metropolitan Athanasios is just saying this, I don't know, to get votes, maybe, and then does the right thing, that would be fantastic. You know, because not that I'm, again, not a supporter of democracy here. But I'm just from a, again, from a elect, from a literal electoral perspective here, we know that Metropolitan Neophytos, from my perspective, I don't think he's going to cave on this issue. And Metropolitan Nikiphoros of Kikos, who I believe is the Metropolitan that Metropolitan Athanasios ended up was in contention with with him and that ended up the third candidate chrysostomos ended up succeeding because of the split vote i believe he, he wrote the book that we've mentioned before completely defending the canonical church and giving the basis of in history and the church canons and canon law about why it's wrong to commemorate epiphany domenico and why the ecumenical patriarchate is wrong to have given the tomos of autocephaly to the schismatic church and between him being popular and all of this it could be that maybe from the perspective of the synod, because it's the synod's vote that ultimately decides the final of the top three, they get the most votes. Perhaps that could help Metropolitan Neophytos. Unfortunately, there are other bishops, and generally, again, the, the patriarch before had set the precedent of commemorating the schismatics, but just pray about this. Uh, it's still, what is it? I believe it's 24, 20-something days away. It's on December 18th is the election, so be sure to pray about this. Uh, and may God's will be done, of course. And as we've talked about, Cyprus, Metropolitan Neophytos, the, the, the people, his support group, Metropolitan Neophytos in Greek, I've, I've translated some of it. They talked about that he has a coherent vision for the Orthodox future of Cyprus. He's, you know, restored old monasteries, old churches, and he has a vision, as he's talked about, for converting and for, for evangelizing to the Turkish population. And I think that's those, those, this kind of saintly witness and this kind of exuberance in a way and this excitement to to spread the gospel is something that we need. Yeah, at the end of the day, of course, evangelism and missionary work is the is the foundation of the church. When Christ ascended, he told the apostles to go out and preach to all the people, convert them, bring them into the church. And so that is, of course, the most important thing is to teach orthodoxy and you know teach about Christ and his good good word to all the people of the world. And those who are willing to hear, hear it and receive it, you know, give them the chance to do so. And of course, uh, that is the message at the end of the day for that's That's why the church needs to be united, of course, and why schisms are so problematic, because schisms such as the schism in Ukraine, it distracts from the true church, from the true teaching and tradition. And of course, if there are multiple churches, such as in, unfortunately, in the Protestant world, where there are these hundreds and thousands of denominations, uh, people get confused as to which tradition is correct. Well, which church came from Christ? Well, that is the open question that has been around since the Reformation, essentially. And in the Roman Catholic world, it's even worse because the church is apparently united under the Pope, but all the teachings are different. You have these Nestorians, you have all these various Eastern um, Eastern units, what, what they call um, 
uh, Eastern Byzantine Catholics who practice and venerate saints, which don't even fall under the, uh, I suppose, don't even, haven't even venerated the Pope in their lifetime. So you have these uh, different denominations, and that's the, that's why Orthodoxy preaches a certain unity and Catholicity. Everyone needs to be united in teaching and dogma in order to, of course, um, bring everybody to Christ. That is the number one goal, and which is why me and Conrad, of course, we keep mentioning that schism is such a tragedy for the church and why even, I mean, for the longest time, and schism, mind you, as Father Joseph mentioned, schism has been around since the first centuries of Christianity. So it isn't exactly a new issue or something that the Ukraine or Russia has invented. No, no, this has been around. This has been an ongoing problem. It's one of the tools that the devil uses, one of the mechanisms for division among people to separate people from the main church by you know increasing hubris uh, giving them sort of these attitudes these ideas that well look i know more than my neighbor i should separate and be my own leader okay this is this sort of prideful hubristic uh hubristic ideas they only lead to tragedy in the long term and of course hell right and now uh, speaking of hubris and bizarre opinions let's just mention the fact that the patriarch of alexandria so one of the most ancient orthodoxies in Alexandria, he is technically the bishop of all of Africa as well. So he looks after all the Orthodox people in Africa. He recently excommunicated, well, or allegedly claimed to have excommunicated the Russian exarch in Africa, uh, Arch, uh, Bishop Leonid. And so uh, Bishop Leonid was excommunicated by um, Archbishop uh, uh, Theodorus, which, again, this is this is really bizarre because Archbishop Bishop Leonid cannot be excommunicated by of course, Patriarch Theodorus of Alexandria, because he f simply doesn't belong to the same jurisdiction as Patriarch Theodorus. And it's just this bizarre, of course, virtue signaling from the, the Patriarch Theodorus, who, mind you, of course, we respect our um, Greek and African bishops, but there is this understanding that their support for the Ukrainian schism and, of course, their support of Zelensky and the Ukrainians in the recent war has been a... Uh, detrimental to not just themselves, but also to, I guess, the Orthodox Church in general in the world. Just the uh, thought I'd mention, just the fact that, you know, uh, this conflict and these, uh, you know, this push of Ukrainian schism across the world has not only affected those in Europe, but also in Africa and Asia and other nations. And of course, this schism, as we mentioned, Father Joseph and Patrick Casey, actually, this schism is not something which is widespread. It does affect about five to 10% of the church only. So it's not like, the whole Orthodox Church is collapsing in on itself. No, no, no. This is something which is clearly happening on the fringes, but and it's a loud minority of people. For example, the Synod of Alexandria, the former Synod of Cyprus, of course, which also the Cypriots, the Alexandrians, they both supported the Ukrainian systematics. These things they do cause um, they do cause contention in the world, and but these are loud minorities in the Orthodox Church, of course. Now it's very unfortunate, and we've mentioned you know the. Russian exarchate in Africa and how I believe we mentioned on the show before how even the claim by the Alexandrian Patriarchate of being, you know, the Patriarch of all of Africa, that's a 20th century idea that I believe was put forward by Miletios Metaxakis, who was a Freemason. So it's important to recognize that while in an ideal world, I didn't see anything wrong with the idea that the Patriarch of Alexandria could have had prominence over all of Africa, that idea is not that 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 has nothing that is nowhere near as old and ancient of a tradition and a territorial claim idea as you know Russia's you know ecclesiastical sovereignty over Ukraine. I mean that's just to compare the two would be silly. And I think as we're seeing you know the these condemnations and you know the patriarch no longer commemorating Patriarch Kirill, it it, it does show that some of these Greek patriarchates, most notably Alexandria and 
the Patriarch of Constantinople are very much aligned with the West on this, and Cyprus is kind of caught in the middle of, you know, are they going to side with Alexandria and Constantinople, or are they going to side with Antioch and Jerusalem, the other two, you know, Greek, uh, her- the seas of Greek heritage that have stayed strong on the issue and not, and tried their best to do what they can to put forward unity and call councils and have dialogue, which have unfortunately been rebuffed by the Patriarch of Constantinople. Yeah, and this is mentioned in the past that, like, I've tweeted about this several times, but, you know, there are these expectations from prophecy that at one point in the future, Russia will defend Greece against Turkey. But at the moment, unfortunately, the Archbishop of Greece, the Archbishop of Cyprus, the Patriarch of Alexandria, and the Patriarch of Istanbul slash Constantinople, all four of these great Greek leaders, right? have, of course, supported the Ukrainian schism. So what, I guess, what um, what need is there for Russia to, for example, defend Greece against, say, Turkey? And if there was a local conflict, like, would Russia even stand up? And I mean, look, Russia isn't defending the Kurds against Turkey. Russia didn't defend Armenian denomination Christians against, uh, against the Azerbaijani in a recent war. So the, this, there's this expectation that, well, Russia needs to defend Greece, uh, you know, from from Turkey. Well, why? Why does that need to happen? Greece has recently sent weapons and mechanized troops, uh, not mechanized troops, but equipment to to the Ukraine in order to, um, you know, uphold the Ukrainian war and to, you know, buffer up uh, Zelensky's power. So what, there's this uh, misunderstanding, I suppose, in the Orthodox world, and especially on Twitter and all these communities, that Russia and Greece are allies. This isn't the case at the moment. Unfortunately, it just isn't. Uh, ecclesiologically, uh, you know, do the Greeks mostly, the majority of the Greeks are, of course, supporting schism in terms of the Greek leaders. I believe the masses and those actually attending church, the laity, are, are probably not of these opinions. They're probably not pro-Zelensky. They're not pro-Western values. They're not pro-United States, actually. Maybe those in the, in America are, but as we spoke with Patrick Casey, like, there's this understanding that, well, the whole Greek church is united against Russia. That's probably not the case. I believe the majority of bishops maybe are, but the laity and the base clergy, the deacons, the priests and and all the based clergy are of course on the side of church tradition and you know understanding that kiev is one of russia's great cities it's you know foremost capital from from the ancient times and you know russian ecclesiological some sovereignty as conrad correctly stated like i really i really like those words has must be upheld so we kind of see that uh the greeks um and in terms of this we're speaking primarily about the prophecy of saint paisius that you know Russia will fight the Turks in order to, you know, protect Greece. I think that may be a few decades away, like, or maybe even longer, because at the moment, Greece is just simply not not uh, supporting Russia in any sort of palpable fashion. I, mean, I think they're, they're not allies. Greece is a member of NATO. It is a member of the EU. It is under, you know, economic, um, econ- economic subjugation to the IMF and all the other uh, mega banks which have loaned it money. So there's just, uh, I'm just not seeing it. Well, you kind of bring up the idea that there's kind of two paths that it could happen, you know, if there is ecclesial unity that could play a part in it. But the other option, of course, is that Constantinople is ostensibly liberated due to perceived no other choice from the Russians to go to war with Turkey, you know, which would ostensibly, uh, I think even as St. Paisios talks about, stop an impending Turkish assault onto the Greek islands, onto the Greek mainland, which um, I believe many of the actual maritime borders that he discussed when he was alive, have actually he discussed them being broken, have already been broken by the Turks, which is interesting. I believe the Christian Orthodox Miracles YouTube channel has a video on that. Panagioti, the host, he's a great guy. I recommend everyone watch and subscribe to that channel. 
a, a based Greek Orthodox Aussie, uh, very a very jacked individual, a true a king, a, a king among among men down under. But he he has some videos about about what Saint Paisio says, so I recommend going and checking that out. But uh, if there's nothing else to say, perhaps about some of the ecclesiological situation, uh, I wanted to briefly mention. Uh, Victor Orban's scarf. If you have anything else to say about ecclesiology, I was going to mention that briefly before moving on to something else. No, no, I think we can speak about ecclesiology for hours. I, I think the Hungarian story where the prime minister walks out of the scarf is is a lot more uh, on the nose, should it, so to speak. Oh no! So anyone who didn't see, uh, I think it was at a at a football a football as an American soccer game, uh, Hungarian prime minister uh, Victor Orban had a scarf. You know the scarfs that people wear at soccer games had the image of a greater Hungary. So it had, you know, new borders that contained, you know, the Hungarian minorities in, you know, Romania or Ukraine, Serbia, and these places as, you know, greater Hungary, which, I mean, Viktor Orban's foreign minister has expressed irredentist claims, you know, calling out to the Hungarians in Transcarpathia, which we've talked about on the show, There's that there's a non-zero possibility of Russia maybe getting some of that territory, I mean, Hungary getting some of that territory back. But uh, people flipped out, and I believe it was the was which one was it? Was it the Ukraine? I definitely did, and I think Romania and maybe Moldova, some of these other countries, you know, issued statements, you know, saying Viktor Orban needed to apologize and stuff. I didn't see anything from Serbia. Maybe they said something too. But uh, what, what do you think about this? I thought it was pretty funny. No, I think things are very interesting because Viktor Orban over the last five plus years has really come out as this. Uh sort of personification of Hungarian nationalism and conservatism, like defending his country against illegal immigrants, legal immigrants, as well as, you know, foreign intervention, kind of, and not just that, um, foreign intervention, I mean, not like literally militarily, but culturally, like he's really upholding sort of Hungarian Christian values, as well as this national conservatism, which many hope to have their own countries embrace. For example, he is the Hungarian version of Donald Trump. If you aren't familiar with Viktor Orban, you don't have really time to search up. He's the prime minister of Hungary. Viktor Orban is a very Trump, Trump-esque sort of conservative national leader in a way uh, similar to Lukashenko, I suppose, in his own right. But he is strictly Hungarian. So his interests, of course, are are for Hungary, you know, he's not representing, he's not pro-Russian, he's not pro-Ukrainian, and this, the scarf, of course, represents a larger Hungary than it is in today's borders, and it also, of course, uh, touches certain areas of, uh, you know, uh, Romania, I believe, Ukraine as well, and just have to recall, Western Ukraine is probably one of the most hottest spots in all of Europe. It is the Alsace-Lateringia of France-Germany, you know, it's the it's the area which has been fought over many, many times. At the beginning of World War One, when the Russian Empire fought the Austro-Hungarians, the one city which they captured in the first few months of the war was Lvov. Lvov was actually in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So there was a huge celebration in Russia because Russians have actually liberated Lvov in World War One in, in 1914. This was like a really big deal. So Hungarians and Austrians have, of course, controlled parts of Western Ukraine in the past, similar to how I mentioned the Turks in the past have controlled uh, areas of Syria. So we, we see almost as if, and of course the Chinese have controlled Taiwan and Hong Kong. So we have it, all these, uh, it's sort of like Dugan's wishes and not just Dugan, but all these other political theorists internationally have have had these prognoses the, that this clash of civilizations, every civilization, every uh, major state will kind of push its own national identity first. And this multipolarity of interests, we are returning to this pre-World War One world where everyone kind of follows their own interests first and puts say, globalist values second. And we're seeing that in Hungary, even though Hungary technically is not a global power. I wouldn't even say it's a civilization in and of itself. It is a, a sort of part of Europe, 
as 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 much as can be said about that. It is smaller than Poland, for example, but still, even even this little country, Hungary, right? And it's not even a strong military power, but it's also kind of virtue signaling this idea that look, we do have national aspirations of our own. We are seeking to potentially, you know, or theoretically, or at least even spiritually, expand our borders, which I think is pretty funny. No, it's uh. It Orban has really impressed me. Not that I always liked him, as I viewed him as one of the best of that kind of coalition in the post-Brexit era in Europe, where all these leaders really rose to the fore and asserted themselves on the national stage. But Orban has been the best of all of them. He stayed strong. He has refused to balk on Russia, and he's even thrown aside the stupid idiots in the intermarium project that would rather go to war with Russia than look out for their own people, and is more interested now in just pursuing a serbia austria kind of alliance thing of people that are more reasonable i guess on their foreign policy but uh, he also is not at all disavowed you know more identitarian ideas about you know ethnicity which is is interesting and admirable because he already gets a lot of pressure for he was already when he made those comments he was already under a lot of pressure from the eu for his you know disdain for gender and gay marriage ideology and whatnot so he's really leading a uh, a renaissance of his country which is uh which is great. So I, I, I'm a big, I, I support him. You know, maybe he'll become Orthodox someday. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to um, his irredentist claims on his scarf, you know, I, again, I've, we've, we've posted maps before that show Transcarpathia as Hungary. So, you know, maybe that'll be something we, we realize, but um, you know, we're, we're getting, I think we're past an hour here. I think we're uh, maybe start wrapping this up a little bit, a few more things to talk about, but domestically in America, uh, there have been a few developments. Our, our man Donald Trump had some interesting people over for dinner. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, Dimitri. Well, I think there's many thoughts, and it's not just my thoughts which uh, you know which matter here. I think there's a lot of people giving their opinions, but Kanye, Nicholas Fuentes, and Milo Yiannopoulos, these three really contentious figures, at least recently, have all kind of united and uh, coalesced in Mar-a-Lago in uh, Florida and. Uh, you know, meeting of Trump, uh, having a great dinner, you know, everyone's just like, it's hard to say exactly where all of this is going. And at this point, we're speaking on the 25th of November, 2022. But at this point, it's hard to say exactly how all of this will end. But we do see maybe Trump seeking an alliance from the really far right wing, like a more reasonable far right wing than say, uh, that of, you know, a Richard Spencer and all of these uh, weird characters of the alt-right, you know, in 2015 and 16. These are more reasonable figures. Fuentes, Yiannopoulos, like these, even though they are eccentric and a little bit bizarre, they do make a bit more sense than simply some of those outright people in the 2015 and 16. I would say that much. But uh, Kanye, of course, uh, representative of one of the richest and most successful American hip-hop and uh, rap stars of, of the last two decades, you know, uh, I think him siding with Trump, or at least having this discussion with Trump, bring up these radical ideas, these politically, um, I suppose, cogent and uh, very spicy subjects. Uh, I'm not sure where this will go, but I guess it depends how, how, I guess it will depend on the fact that, you know, it will all depend on whether or not these people are given a political voice in the, in the world arena. Of course, Elon Musk unbanning many accounts next week, I believe. So we'll see if these people return to Twitter and whether or not Donald Trump himself returns to Twitter. I think this will be the crowning point of, all of this entire storyline, which will these people all engage with each other and the world on this broader Twitter platform? Well, as Sam Hyde you know, recently said, we're about to be in the best timeline. And we might be seeing uh, something like that begin to manifest. And I think what it shows about Kanye is he is definitely, he's all in. He's not just going to, he's never going to apologize for his most controversial statements, you know, about 
you know, let's just, you know international bankers and whatnot. I think him taking Fuentes as an uninvited guest to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump shows that he's committed to not backing down from the principled stances he's taken and the controversial statements that made him lose so much of his fortune. Uh, I know reports said that Trump was impressed with Fuentes. Trump released a more recent statement saying he didn't know him, so probably trying to somewhat distance himself from his more controversial comments. But I don't know how this is... I'm, I'm most confused how this is going to play out for Trump. Like, I think this is the first real challenge from the right for Trump we've seen that is actually not just going to like just be a total meme. Like, again, I don't know where this will go, but these are powerful players. And I can't remember her name. It was... Oh, I think I'm pulling it up here. Uh... Ye didn't just bring Fuentes and Yiannopoulos. He also brought a former Trump Florida like high-level campaign manager who was somewhat that was a, somewhat of a power play, I think, from Kanye. He talked about that in the little video he released on Twitter. But no, you're right. When Elon doing his general amnesty, like that could be huge and going in alignment with this, it's like an extreme synchronicity. And I mean, I hope he does the general amnesty. I could get Let's just say there'd be some cool accounts coming back that I would recommend you mm -hmm. may follow uh, if that general amnesty happens. But um, mm -hmm. it would be crazy if that happens. I don't know if, like, is Alex Jones, is everybody coming back except Alex Jones? Like, is that literally what's going to happen? I'm not sure. But uh, that poll got way more votes than bringing Trump back. So it seems that, you know, people on Twitter are really getting behind. Like, it's a, a cause is being formed. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready for Elon to bring back Twitter blue. I'm ready to get my my blue ch my my blue check mark and and support the cause despite you know silly crony capitalist globalist advertisers maybe wanting to suppress suppress free speech online. Well, and, and let's not forget the fact that of course uh, the I guess what you would call the lukewarm uh, milk toast conservatives in the United States recently minus Tucker Carlson are very pro Ukrainian. So we have this uh, we have this sort of uh, same George Bush type esque really a foundational WASP-style Republican supporting Ukraine, supporting Zelensky. And then you have these really far-right, eccentric, uh, a little bit crazy, maybe a little bit out there figures such as, you know, Yiannopoulos, Fuentes, people who, you know, you may not agree with uh, if you're speaking to your, to a, you know, you may not speak about these figures at a respectable dinner party, but you will listen to their podcasts, you know, kind of in private because, you know, they do have the most interesting ideas and they are, you know, brave and outspoken. So you have these... Uh, and of course, Kanye recently as well. Let's just let's not pretend like his interviews haven't been absolute bombs. So, in terms of uh, popularity and just uh, kind of shaking everything up, so we have these huge political figures, and notice none of them are exceptionally pro Zelensky either. It seems like the most reasonable people in international relations at the moment are the far right, are these alleged, um, you know, fundamental fundamentalist Americans, sort of America first candidates and America first members of uh, the American. American, politi American political scene. And of course, it does remind you of, uh, you know, or Richard Spencer in 2014 going to Russia and visiting Alexander Dugin or something like that. But that was, uh, that was more of a, more of a meme than anything else, really. Nothing really came of that. Whereas uh, here we actually see these figures, they have fundamental, they fundamentally put American interests first. They are against America funding, uh, not just, I suppose, Israel. Oh, that's kind of a minor issue compared to, I mean, Let's just be real about this, Conrad. <laughs> the, U the U.S. has given Ukraine more money than it has given Israel over the last two decades, three decades, maybe. So it's not even comparable in any state. I, I think this. The I think the Israel discourse has kind of gone out the window in the same way that the vaccine mandate discourse and my body, my choice has thrown abortion debate out the window. So in, in, this, in a similar fashion, I think the Israel discussion will go downhill. I think the new target, notice how yeah, people are talking about SS Liberty, all these cons uh, all these really, really uh, contentious subjects in 2018-17, but now 
uh, the new subject, of course, which may benefit Orthodox Christians is we have uh, people like Fuentes, these far-right figures, Yiannopoulos, all of these uh, fringe right-wing fundamentalists speaking about should we be funding Zelensky? Should we be funding literal neo-Nazis who are you know, controlled by the West, controlled by the CIA? And the answer is no. And again, I guess, uh, let me just uh, continue here. There is this weird hypocrisy from the liberal media where they say, well, Trump is meeting these uh, far right, right wing, Holocaust denial, et cetera, et cetera, these evil people. Well, mind you, CNN, you have literally reported on the Ukrainian war uh, in a biased manner. Uh, un, you know, unlike proper journalists, you have thrown away objectivity. Where are your reports about neo-Nazism in the Ukraine? What about all of these battalions, Kraken, Tornado, Azov, Idar, etc., etc.? Like, you are just... So you're hammering Trump for meeting up with these young, right-wing, I guess, eccentric speakers and nationalists, whereas you're you're not touching the Ukrainian issue at all, even though the U.S. has given close to half a trillion dollars to the Ukrainian cause at the moment. I think it's completely hypocritical. Um, there's no, there's no really, There's no way around it, I think. Well, I, I just think it's true that uh, Trump, if he is going to come back onto the political scene, he's, if he's not kind of woke to the Ukraine thing at this point, he's just going to fall flat. He's just not reading the situation properly because that's anybody reasonable, anybody who's kind of, you know, seeing through the veil, piercing through and seeing reality, they're, they're coming to these conclusions as well. And when it comes to Israel, you know, I think we've, we've got to follow Iran to see how much, you know, you know, if war with Iran, that could be the only thing that could see us start giving Ukraine levels of money to Israel. But in many ways, you could also call, you know, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan money to Israel in some ways. So it's a bit of a it's 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 hard to calculate some of these numbers exactly. But when it comes to, you know, Kanye going meeting with Trump, all these sorts of things, I think, again, the debate before this was all about DeSantis and Trump. This is a lot more interesting. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say maybe maybe I'm falling for a red herring because it's just interesting. But I'd much rather talk about this than talk about. Oh, uh, who's more electable, DeSantis? Oh, but what if we ran Christie Nome? I'm like, oh, shut up, man! Like, I can't. Like, if you if you want to come in the comments, talk about that. Like, go somewhere else, man. Like, I don't want. That's so boring. But <laughs> when it when it comes to this, this is this is interesting stuff. This is the Overton window shifting. And I'll just say, I guess, I mean, I have met Nick in person. Uh, I followed him since 2017, so it's interesting for people who have, you know, even people who have been following since like the Groiper Wars, when you know Nick and like Patrick Casey, who we just talked to pressed Charlie Kirk and, you know, got him sweating and shifted the conversation in the American right drastically regarding immigration and foreign aid. And uh, so it's really satisfying for people like us. I know Dimitri's followed similar things for a long time. It's very satisfying because uh, these are things, you know, that you couldn't just like bring up in public. And now like people are asking me about it before I even talk to them. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. And we live in exceedingly interesting times, to say the least. Yeah, and I must say, I do agree with Scott Greer on his recent podcast where he did say, as long as Tucker Carlson remains the most watched mainstream media talk show host on, you know, on Fox News, then I think Trump and other, you know, Trump and the right wing agenda will kind of stay in the in the sphere of, I guess, uh, reality, because Tucker Carlson is at this point, at least he wasn't in 2015 or maybe you can say even 16, but now he really is the leader of American right wing thought in a way. Right. So as long as Tucker Carlson, mind you, Tucker Carlson, which Scott did mention, isn't pro Ukrainian exactly like he isn't pro Russian, but he's pro America first, frankly. So it's just the idea that uh, Tucker Carlson is not not really throwing it all, throwing throwing American lives away for Ukraine and not supporting the war cause, such as some of the previous hosts of Fox News is who have supported American invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, and the bombing of Libya. This is already a positive development, okay? Regardless of your opinions on Tucker, on these far-right American figures such as Fuentes, Greer, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is, these are very foundational and positive developments for American politics long term. Hey, let's be careful about the far right labels, you know, that I'm, I live in America. They're going to throw those at me, too, because, you know, we we go on these guys shows. So let's, <laughs> you know, we're just normal. They call us far right, but we're just the normal guys. <laughs> but no, it all, it, I think the um, all of this is a big like people are like when the videos of Fuentes and Kanye walking through the airport came out, people were like, is this real? Like, there's no way this is real kind of thing. And then the whole moral, like it was crazy enough without the whole Mar-a-Lago angle. And that, you know, that's, that's added this whole new dimension to it. But for better or for worse, it seems like we're getting a, a nationwide reckoning on, on the ideas that got everybody banned from Twitter right at the same time, everyone's getting back on Twitter. So, I mean, to stop believe, I think in these kind in this, in a great, in a greater plan or in, in, in kind of, just, just the metaphysical and the physical kind of interacting here would be silly because this is we're clearly entering into a zeitgeist moment. I think we are developing somewhere. We are definitely in a linear timeline, so to speak. Uh, I think we've left the we've left the orthodox sort of cyclical uh, cyclical existence behind, and we are heading towards some sort of eschatological events. Unfortunately, um, yeah. So things are really developing quickly, and I think with that, we're going to start wrapping up this episode. It's been a great talk with you, Conrad, today. I'm really actually afraid of what might happen in this next week. Things are developing so quickly. We might need to have some additional episodes maybe hosted maybe in the middle of the week or probably even better. We'd probably have some open Twitter spaces where we can discuss some of these issues live with the with some of the audience members and the people following us just have throw around some ideas. Yeah, I think uh, some Twitter spaces are going to be in the work and we'll probably try to record those as best we can so that we can even post them on YouTube and other places so that if you can't make it, you can listen to the discussion, listen to people asking questions and stuff. And uh, no, we've, we've been growing a lot on Twitter, so hopefully we can get a lot of people on there. But this has been an action-packed episode, so much stuff. We could have talked about more, as always, but uh, eventually we're going to start going back to the more uh, long, you know, we had the hour 40, hour 50-minute conversations. But eventually, those, you know, the last 40 minutes, those are going to be behind the Substack uh, paywall for you to support us. So uh, that'll be coming in the next few months. We'll get that going, but... Event, this an hour will always be available on YouTube for free. Never forget that. But uh, yeah, when it comes to ecclesiology, Cyprus, schism, Turkey, uh, Ukraine blackouts, is there anything you want to mention before we uh, do some more plugs and uh, land this plane? Yeah, I think just uh, in terms of weekly prognosis, if we do see any developments in the on the Ukrainian front, I think uh, bombardments will continue in the south or along the Kherson line. Uh, Ukraine will not be pushing in the south past Kherson, I don't believe, but there may be a lot of fighting in the Zaporozhye. So that's central Ukraine, south of Kharkov, north of Kherson in that region, maybe even around Izum. I think the Russians will maybe seek to push the Ukrainians slightly westwards. And as we saw, fortifications were coming up north of Lugansk. So there is this understanding that Ukraine may be actually having some sort of northern offensive as well, push towards the Russian line. So we may see that develop in the next week and a half. So do expect certain movements there. I don't think it'll be because it hasn't it's not too cold yet. Lane. The winter really hasn't set in yet. We're not in, we're not quite yet in December. So we may still see some actions on action, unfortunately, on the Ukrainian front, as well as, of course, in Turkey. Turkey, I believe, will continue pushing the Kurds and developing their interests in Syria, unfortunately, uh, for all the Christians involved there and, uh, you know, uh, all those who are technically um, now, I suppose, collateral who uh, aren't really involved in the whole situation but will be negatively affected. Prayers and thoughts for all of you, and may God protect you all. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good way to wrap everything up. I think we're going to, we have one more episode. We've got a big interview next week. Not going to say who quite yet, so follow us on the socials for that. But one more episode before December 5th when the big possibility of the straits closing to russian oil tankers could happen so uh we'll be 
following up on that closely. And uh, the election coming up December 18th, don't forget, tell your Greek friends, tell your Cypriot friends, go to the Greek church, ring the bell, vote for Metropolitan Theophytos for our Cypriot and Greek listeners. Uh, pray for that election, pray for the church around the world, pray for the Kiev Pochai of Lavra and their persecution by the Ukrainian officials. And with all of that, uh, yeah, keep us in your prayers, of course, for entering into the Advent season. So I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving here in the States and is preparing to have a Merry Christmas. And uh, please, again, follow us on Twitter, WorldWarNow underscore, follow us on Telegram, WorldWarNowTelly. Uh, follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow uh, Dimitri O. Canonist. Uh, please subscribe to this channel. It helps us out a lot. Like the video and share. Everyone who I've heard who sends it to their relatives and friends, they get great feedback. So uh, please do that. It helps us out a lot. And please, please, please subscribe to the Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. It's our home base. You'll never miss any of our content if you subscribe to the Substack, including our interviews when me and Dimitri go on other people's shows. There will always be something there, and we've got a bunch of articles coming out. So uh, with all of that, please have a fantastic week. Uh, God bless you all, and we'll see you next time.